Hello everyone, and happy holidays. This is Tim from Progress Portland. A few notes here before we get started. Uh, there are some campaign launches coming up of some of these excellent candidates that we've been talking to. If you haven't listened to all of the episodes, we've got some great people. Our very first interview was with Steph Routh, who is a candidate in District 1, and uh, just a powerhouse, just an incredible candidate that we should all rally behind. She has a campaign launch Friday, January 26th at 6 o'clock. You can go to her Instagram to RSVP, and then you'll get more details about the invite. That's Friday, January 26th. Her Instagram is Steph4, that's the number 4, Steph, S-T-E-P-H-4, East PDX. Also, wonderful candidate Chris Flannery is having their own campaign launch a couple weeks from now, Sunday, January 14th at Kachka. Find out more on their Instagram, which is just Chris for Portland. Also on the event calendar, Kip and I are working with District 2 candidates, uh, District 2 is North Portland, to host a forum in early February uh, where we're going to gather as many of the candidates as we can to have some real talk, get to know what they're about, and give everyone a chance to ask them some questions and get to know them. We will have more details soon. I'm excited for this event. Finally, so many of the candidates who are running and that we're talking to are opting into the small donor program, and they need at least 250 donations by sometime in February. If they get that, they then qualify for matching funds. Now, the matching funds, as you may have heard from the news, have gone down from nine times what they raise to four point something. City Council actually was told that the money would run out and an extra $4.5 million was needed for the program to be effective, and they vetoed it. But that means that the donations are even more important for these folks who are opting not to take big business, big money. The largest donation they're allowed to take is 350 bucks, which is not much compared to people who are not running on the small donor program. So it's going to be an uphill battle. If you donate as little as five bucks, you help them qualify because they only need 250 donations of any size in order to qualify. Of course, they'll need more because the program matches up to four times what they've raised. So if everybody only donates five bucks, then they don't raise all that much money. Anyway, please support the candidates that you believe in, listen to the candidates on our show, see if you get behind them, and help them qualify for the matching funds. Okay, on to the episode. A quick caveat, this one's a little choppier because we recorded it on site at Blanchet House in Old Portland, a little noisier. It's still a wonderful conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the Progress Portland Podcast. I'm Tim Halber. I'm Kip Silverman. And we are sitting here today on site. This is our first remote recording of the podcast and our first esteemed guest that is not currently a city council candidate. We're here with uh, John Siebert. He's director of programs at Blanchet House. Hey, glad to be here. We wanted to talk to you uh, specifically as someone who is entrenched on the ground involved with homeless services to get a report of how things are going and also a sense of what city council candidates should be looking for in terms of their own policy. So thanks thanks for being here. Yeah, absolutely. On, um, Would you talk to us a little bit about Blanchet House and the work you do and communities that you serve? Yeah, absolutely. So we have been around for just over 70 years now. We certainly have gotten a bigger name for ourselves. Uh, since COVID, but this is an old organization and the origin was uh, free meals, no questions asked. Uh, that started as a pretty simple program. They eventually added, 
added a residential program, and then we have a farm out in Yamhill County as well. Um, but really, free meals in Old Town is the core of it. Um, that has looked like a lot of different things over the years, um, starting in 1952. Obviously, every decade has brought its own challenges and a lot of people that need free meals. Um, I personally started working here at Blanche House uh, in March of 2020. I came here right when COVID hit. Started out volunteering. I was fortunate enough to then turn that into a position here as we saw the need rising. But I think it's always interesting to point out to people how many organizations have been doing work in these services for so long. I think it gets really easy to imagine homelessness as a new problem, imagine addiction as a new problem, not just here, but in a lot of different areas. This is a very old problem that we haven't figured out the answers to. And that is not to change the dynamics of the challenges we are currently facing. But I think it's important for us to remember in any sort of situation where we feel like it's a crisis to take a step back and think what's actually going on here. You know, it can be very stressful to see someone sleeping in a tent. It can be very stressful to see someone who is overdosing on opiates. But to take a step back and think about what is the larger implications of what's going on? How does this connect to what's going before? Um, and I think that's a really important perspective that people need to bring. And it's one of the reasons why I enjoy working for an organization that does have such deep roots, because there is that context. Nice. And do you have a perspective on, I'm sure that the Blanche House has sort of tracked over the years, like how many people served? both from the perspective of how many people you have coming through mm -hmm. and if that's ebbed or flowed, um, but also the larger numbers. I know that, that headcounts are tough, uh, but there have been efforts over the years to do headcounts. Have you seen reliable numbers? What, what numbers do, have you seen out there in terms of how many homeless there are? Has that gone up and down? Definitely. Uh, data is always you know, one of the big questions we get asked about, especially you know, asking for grants and all those different things. Everyone wants to know the numbers. Just today, actually, Housing and Urban Development Federal Agency released the large uh, point-in-time count report that's kind of the general overview. I still haven't seen the numbers for Portland specifically. I don't think they're out yet. But as, as no one will be surprised, uh, Housing and Urban Development has shown that homelessness has once again increased from the last point in time, from 2022 to 2023. We have tried to keep as low a barrier service as possible. And so part of that means that, yes, we do have numbers, um, but it's a little more complicated than just this many people, this many things. A lot of the individuals that are experiencing homelessness, if you're coming from a background where you're traumatized or you've had interactions with the law, if you're going to a service, you might not want to show your ID. You might, might not want to give your name. And there might be a lot of different reasons for that. We have a lot of people who don't even have records but are very concerned and paranoid for all sorts of different reasons. Um, we don't require people give us a name. We don't require people get an ID when they come to our services. And that's one of the reasons we have been so well attended in the last few years. So we just count it by plate numbers. You come in, you get a plate, great, we count that. Um, we're on pace to do over 350,000 meals uh, this year, um, which is a lot. Um, in 2020, when pretty much everything shut down, we did over 500,000. That I hope we are never that wow. busy again. Wow. That that was uh, that was not a sustainable number. Um, those are the numbers I try to tell people when when we're talking about this: 30,000 meals a month plus. And I think whether you're parsing that out and trying to make it a person or anything, what that says is there's a massive need. 
one of the things that we also try to do in trying to be a low barrier service is not create that extra level of someone having to prove poverty. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is one of the challenges to a lot of different services as well. And especially if you talk to people who work for different agencies where you're trying to get housing or you're trying to get um, different kinds of assistance, there are different markers for, well, if you're earning this much, well, if you are this age, well, if you are over that age, um, that can open and close doors for you. We have a lot of people who come to our services who are housed, um, who live in the area, but just can't make their day-to-day -day payments match what they need to actually get meals. We have people who have disabilities and their disability check really only covers so much. If you look at the average studio apartment in Portland and what a disability check covers, there's no more room for being able to pay for food. So we see a lot of individuals who might not necessarily be what everyone imagines as someone who's homeless, who's coming to a soup kitchen, that kind of thing. We're, we're just serving human beings. And that's, that's, I think one of the things that I try to tell anyone who comes to our services, when we get a corporate group coming in, when we get a school coming in, when we get people who work for different government agencies coming in, that that's what I really want to be the main message here is that this is not about a specific sector mm -hmm. of something going on in our city that's 360,000 plates in front of human beings mm -hmm. and that that is what we're talking about whenever we're talking about solutions as we were talking about making sure that people do not need that many free plates in old town which has been a challenging part of oregon since well before blanche house because we set up here because it was challenging back in 1952 mm. um, so that's also not new i i wasn't aware of that uh, let's stick with data for a moment. So I have a little bit of understanding the point in time count, which is generally it's federally mandated. It generally happens in early to midwinter, I believe. And it's where a bunch of volunteers go out and walk around centers of population and basically count how many people they see sleeping outside. In 2017, I believe it was PSU, decided to do a study to look at, well, what does that look like outside of the immediate city? What does that look like in the greater Portland region? And um, it took two years, I believe, to compile the study. It came out the summer of 2019. But if memory serves, their count was, in our area, 37,000 people who experienced homelessness or unstable housing or slept in their car or somebody's floor or in the streets or whatever over the course of the year. And the numbers were stunning, right? It was just like anybody who is involved in one area or another or sector or another could tell you their anecdotal experience, but looking at it from a holistic viewpoint like that was incredible. And then I don't think they were ever commissioned to do another study. Mm. And the point in time count went back to what it is. And it's consistently five to 6,000 people every year. What I'm curious about, and, and you talk, you know, in general, number of meals served, especially during the pandemic on, and regularly, do you see it's trending down? But we see more visibility of people living in the streets, I think, in the last couple of years, especially as pandemic aid has gone away. Do you feel we're trending back upwards again in, in the few years that you've been in this position? What's your gut anecdotal experience? 
Yeah, I can tell you that our meal numbers have gone up significantly in 2023. We are beating the numbers that we were doing in 2021. We're never going to beat the 2020 numbers. That was an exceptional year. Um, But 2021 is just when vaccines were rolling out, if you recall, and things were still very closed. And we're doing more meals month to month. You know, you match Mm -hmm. October from now to October back then, we're doing more than that. So I can tell you, at least from that, that hunger is a bigger challenge. Talking about the point in time count, talking about data and all of these things, you know, the point in time count is is what it is. You know, it's not a perfect measure, but it is it is a consistent measure. There is at least that. But I think the thing that gets lost often in talking about, oh, are we better than 2021? Mm-hmm. Are we better than 2020? Is that uh, we declared a state of emergency and opened the Joint Office of Homeless Services in 2016. We decided it was an emergency then. And when we are talking about numbers, when we are comparing, we need to start with when we used to think it was emergency as our original benchmark. And mm. I think it's really easy to get caught up in this kind of continual trends and just to look at our most recent challenges. But I think that that's a, an important marker to remember in bringing out the historical context mm-hmm. of where we were. I think one of the other challenges with a lot of the, uh, if we get a little too focused on the data, you know, for example, you're saying like 5,000 here, 6,000 here. Whether it's five or 6,000, that's a massive number. That's a lot of people. And one of the things I always want to try to push, and one of the reasons why we're not super hard in our data collection, is that it's like either of those numbers, we, we shouldn't focus on which one is right. We mm-hmm. should focus on that's a massive number. How do we start getting solutions in that direction? And that's, that's where I've seen a lot of kind of the, the debates going on. It's like, oh, how do we get this number better? Um, right, I, right, my right. original undergraduate degree was in chemical engineering. Um, I can, I can do numbers all day. I can do spreadsheets, all of that. <laughs> that is, that is what I am trained in. And, and that was a, a trend that I saw in a lot of the work that I did is people trying to get super focused on, you know, I did work in alternative energy and for like, Oh, what is, what is the exact thing that's going on with, you know, this or that or the other. And it's like, no, we have a problem. Let's start mm-hmm. working towards the problem. Let's quit working on trying to measure the problem to the exact degree mm-hmm. of what's going on. Mm-hmm. If we agree there's a problem, then we agree there's a problem. And, and I think that that is where we often need to refocus if we're going to find solutions. Super appreciate that. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I've read a lot over the last year about there's, there are people who are homeless and visible on the street. There are people who can't make their rent and are housed part of the time. There are people who are partially housed living with relatives. Uh, All of that stuff can be really hard to count and quantify. uh, But what it boils down to is people who need help. I wanted to follow up on something we were talking about before we started about collaboration. Mm. And about how you see local housing organizations working together and in what way. Yeah, absolutely. And like I said, I started working in homeless services in Portland in 2020. One of the things that was unique about that moment was that because a lot of services closed, we knew who was open and we knew we needed them. You know, there were only three of us doing meals downtown. Mm. And if one of those places had to close because there was a COVID outbreak or something, we wanted to know about it because all of a sudden, you know, yeah. we were, we were <laughs> going to see a lot more people. So um, it was natural of like, let's communicate, let's collaborate, let's get resources here that because it was cut down so much in what was available, that was, a, that was a survival strategy. And we've really built out from that and trying to communicate mm. with more and more organizations, not just those folks that are doing food, but who's doing clothing. We got so many donations early in 2020 because we were one of the few places accepting it, but we could only effectively get so much to Mm -hmm. people. 
and we are only in one geography here. We can't drive all around the city, you know, giving clothing out, for example. So we're reaching out to other organizations and saying, hey, we've got, I've got, I've got 150 extra t-shirts. Do you need some t-shirts? Yes. Excellent. Let's get them to you. When we look at all the organization's mission statements, it's like, we're all trying to do the same thing here. And let's not compete over donors. Let's not compete over, you know, who has the most volunteers that we are all successful when we are successful together. And so a lot of it was around items. A lot of it is around getting people resources. So for example, our residential program is uh, male identifying only. Um, but we are communicating with organizations who have, uh, resources specifically for female identifying. We have organizations that work with other folks as well, recognizing there are specific needs that we can't do everything. Well, we can do some things well, and that one thing we can always do is share information, not try to just hoard resources, but get people to where they're going to be best set up for success. And I think that's one, that's one of the things that whenever people ask me about shelters, like, oh, this shelter is opening, that shelter is opening. Is this the answer? Is that the answer? My answer is always yes and. There are so many different needs out there. There are people who are struggling with substance abuse. There are people who are struggling with mental health. There are some people who just aren't making enough money and need help with that. And if we are trying to throw a one-size-fits-all solution on any of that, then we're missing the point. So I think that is an important place where we have been trying to work with more and more organizations. And so one of the nice things about Blanche House becoming kind of a center for a lot of resources is that we host organizations here all the time during our services. During our lunch services this week, we had several different organizations. We had uh, Medical Teams International here. We had Central City Concern here. Uh, we had the county here with their behavioral health team. Um, all uh, street books all here during our lunch services so that when people are already coming here, they might know these other places, they might not, they might be coming for the other organizations and then seeing us, but recognizing that we need to have all of these resources readily available for people when they're ready and in a trusting space. And once again, that whole thing of, I'm not going to give me your ID. I need to know your name. Who are you? It's like, no, just, just come here. Let's talk about what's going on. Do you want to talk about it? Do you want, are you ready for the next thing? Or are you just here for a cup of coffee because it's cold as heck outside and you spent the night on the sidewalk? Mm -hmm. um, either way, we're going to do it again tomorrow. We're going to do it again next week. We're going to be here consistently. And continuing on the theme of uh, what you'd like to see city council do, are there roadblocks that you see to good policy in terms of housing and food that aren't happening right now? Yeah, I think. The general solutions, you know, are pretty obvious. We need affordable housing. We all know that. And we need more areas where people can get help with mental health and substance abuse. Mm -hmm. I'm not the only one who's saying that. Everyone is saying that. We all know that that's the answer. Right. So the problem then becomes where is the affordable housing? Where is it put? What does affordable mean? Because that changes depending on who you talk to. I myself, I'm in my mid-30s. I have a master's degree and I don't own a home. You know, that's a, yeah. <laughs> that's a reality for a lot of people. And I'm, I'm not struggling. I'm not, I'm not experiencing homelessness, but that is a reality is that I cannot afford a home here right now. In terms of the mental health and substance abuse, having more resources for people that are struggling with that, one of the biggest challenges that I'm, I'm not hearing talked about very often is the shortage of qualified individuals who can work in that field. 
if you look on the website that has like their credentialing through the state of Oregon for CADC or QMHA, um, there's like 70 new job postings a day. Um, it's, mm. it's massive for case managers, um, for peer support, for people who have the qualifications to be really effective in this field. I do not have those qualifications. I cannot do case management. I can run meal services and help a nonprofit grow, but there's only so much that I, I can do. And that that is an expertise area that we are, that is severely lacking. I think that that is one of the biggest pieces is we need to incentivize people mm -hmm. to get into that field. And then when they decide to get into that field, we need to make sure they have appropriate pay and appropriate resources mm -hmm. to make sure that they are able to do that work long-term because it is hard work and you can't just have someone do that 80 hours a week. They will burn mm -hmm. out very quickly and you can make sure they're earning more than a living wage. There's the, the Joe's report that was put out about a lot of the wages going to different service providers and how low it was, it was definitely eye-opening. And I know some changes have been made since then, but that is a massive challenge is our organization relies largely on volunteer work, which is amazing. And we're able to do really great things. Um, but to have people actually as full-time employees working in this field will require a much bigger injection of resources into that as a long-term solution. Yeah, I, I remember reading something about an uproar about Multnomah County having an excess of money for uh, unhoused services and other services. And when you went in deeper in both what I read and uh, conversations I had with people who work for the county, it's like one of the problems is finding uh, organizations that can do the work, that are qualified, that have the staff and can retain people and all those being issues, hiring, who's managing it, where the money's going. Uh, on the podcast, we've talked frequently about services or uh, housing shutting down because the nonprofit hired by the city to do the work decided not to anymore, or can't find the help or any number of reasons. I heard you say yes and rather than a yes but kind of thing. And it strikes me as the answer to all this is spend the money, incentivize people, do not create burdens to getting help now imperfectly versus having just the right thing at the right time to address an issue that's going to change in six months anyway. Is that kind of the summary of that, maybe? Yeah, absolutely. You talked about imperfect answers, and there's no perfect answer. We got to quit holding on to that idea that someone's going to ride in on a white horse with their answer, hand it over, and it's, well, here we are. We got it. That's right. not going to happen. My organization's been around 70 years. There's been a lot of, oh, we got the answer. Oh, we got the answer. We need yes ands. We need to make sure that we are opening up lots of different avenues to that. And some solutions are not going to look perfect and some are going to be like, oh, it's over here oh, it's over there. One of the obvious challenges with, for example, like the temporary alternative shelters is like, well, where we can't put it here. We can't put it there. We can't put it there. We need housing situations everywhere. We need housing situations everywhere. And, and I think that that is a hard thing to figure out is that there's not going to be like, oh, we're going to put all this here. You were asking earlier about, oh, is like everything downtown? No, services are everywhere. And we need to make sure people are connected to that. You know, 
I have, Portland is amazing because we have all these great neighborhood pockets, you mm -hmm. know, and it's like, oh, I live in this neighborhood and I have this little pocket where, you know, the restaurant is and the coffee and, you know, the shops and everything. We need to have the same approach in all the things we're looking at is this is going to be something that is we're having resources everywhere throughout the city that that needs to be a thing. If we are seeing people who are struggling in mm -hmm. this part of the city, then we need resources there. If we are seeing people struggling in that part of the city, we need resources there. We can't just be shuffling things around. And I think that that creates a situation where it's a many answer situation and we need to lean into that. We need to start recognizing that this is going to be a collaborative effort. We've been trying to work with more nonprofits and not, we're not trying to compete for donors. We're not trying to compete for volunteers. We're not trying to compete to like, oh, go to our event. Don't go to their event. You know, we're usually actually looking at calendars and being like, oh, they have this event. We should have an event at a separate time, you know, not try to overcome them. And that's, I think, what we need to start seeing across the board of for-profit, nonprofit government of like, let's quit battling ideas mm -hmm. and let's say, hey, that's good. We've got the money to do it. Let's do it. Because I think we all know right now that it's not a money problem. There's a lot of money. Speaking of that, I was just going to ask, uh, I know the county has gotten a lot of money to, mm -hmm. to deal with housing. Mm -hmm. Don't they have a surplus that they haven't been able to give out? Are you seeing that? Are you hearing that from the other nonprofits that, that they're, they're not able to get the money that's there from the county and from the city? I know it's, it's, it's been a challenge. And I know, you know, there are, there are rules in, in government processes where you have to go through, you know, certain steps to get, to get funding. And, and, you know, those are public processes and, and rightfully so that there should be safeguards in place and all of those different things. But recognizing also nonprofits have to do an enormous amount of reporting mm -hmm. on how our money is spent and it's all public record. People can go find it. You know, we're, if you think we're hiding something about it, we're not. You can you can go Google it. Um, our annual reports are all over our website, all of our finances. We have to do it every year. Um, nonprofit organizations are not hiding the information they're getting about their funding and all that. And they're going through either donors or they're going through a very public process with public funding. So organizations that are looking for this money, this is all transparent in terms of where it's going. And we need to make sure that we are acknowledging how public that process is and give a little bit of trust if anyone is going for that because mm -hmm. if something is amiss it's going to be right there in the open you're not going to have to investigate very hard it's going to be right there yeah so giving trust to that process that's already there of transparency instead of trying to build up extra barriers or you know trying to throw up walls of like oh they have to do this they have to do that it's like no this is this is a hard process like we, we have people specifically that work for this organization to manage that that process of yep. going through those grants because it is cumbersome. So it's there. We just got to start trusting that the people who are doing this work know what they're doing. And that if we put enough resources into the hands of people who have been on the ground, on the street, who know what works, that they're going to keep doing what works. Mm -hmm. That's a great point that you've been doing this for 70 years. Central City Concern has been around for a few decades as well. Places like Raphael House have been here for several decades, right? There are known organizations that do really good work and the barrier for a trusted partner should be much lower than unproven organizations that might be newer or figuring things out. This sounds like a really stupid question, but would a big chunk of money being handed to you help immensely or is it more than just having the finances to do exactly what you want to do. Or like you mentioned, rather than volunteers, maybe you can have more paid staff, things of that nature. Can you scale if properly financed? Yes, if. 
a lot of ifs with that. The listeners out there who work for nonprofits have already, you know, thought my answer before I'm going to say it. <laughs> um, a lot of the money that comes to us is usually tied to something very specific. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that is a, and that can be a huge challenge. If you want work to be done, if you want it to be done efficiently, if you want it to be done by people who are doing it all the time and expertly, if you want someone who is actually dedicated and working in this field long term, you have to pay that person. And that is something that is often missing from a lot of the funding sources or where people don't want to give the funding to, or they want to give it to specifically, oh, we really think that this specific program needs to be done. And it's like, and we might agree, but it's like, also our insurance bills are through the roof right now. Insurance has gotten very expensive and if we're not being a, getting enough funding to pay for our insurance to keep the building running and to replace a window when it gets broken, then we need to handle that and make sure that that is covered before we're taking on new programs. Cause we're thinking about all the income flow of all the different things going on. So can we make payroll? Can we make insurance? Can we do all of these different things? Yes, we're adding programs, but we need to be thinking larger picture. So if we are scaling up, if I had another building, that's more staff, that's more insurance, that's more of the same things. That's not just simply, oh, you gave me a million dollars, a million dollars exactly goes into programs. And and anyone that works for a for-profit business knows all of this as well. Um, it's nonprofits work exactly the same. Right. It's exactly the same. Well, we've kept you long enough. Thank you for, for joining us. Uh, it's been great to be here on site. Uh, before we wrap up, I thought I'd give you a chance. You said you're always pitching for volunteers. Uh, talk to us about uh, about what it's like being a volunteer on site and uh, and reach out to the people out there who might open their hearts and come in. Absolutely. Um, we have run with volunteer services for the entire duration of when I've been here. And the core of that has always been our meal services. Um, three meals a day, six days a week, no questions asked. Uh, volunteers come, and they serve plates, they pour coffee, um, they do some kitchen work, all of that um, in our cafe working with our guests. And it's great. We try to make it low barrier, just like our services. Someone can sign up for one service. They can sign up for 30. I don't care. I just want you to come see what we're doing and and be involved. And and one of the ways that we also try to create community, because I think that's really what we're doing here more than anything else, is we're trying to create a community space, is, uh, is we invite the volunteers to come and eat afterwards too um, with the residents of our program. Because we also recognize that um, if you are taking the time out of your day to go and do something for free, then you are maybe giving up some other opportunity and that a meal is at least one way to compensate for that. You know, that's been a really important thing for us, especially in 2020. We might have had someone who was coming to volunteer one week, maybe was out in our line for food the next week, and then might volunteer again. And, you know, that's that's important to recognize that we're all in the same space. So we try to make our volunteering accessible and easy. We've got more than 50 on-site opportunities a day, more than 1,700 unique volunteers a year. And that's and that's always changing and that's always rotating. And, and I think that's amazing. And uh, I really hope people will come down and see. Um, plus, we serve good food and good coffee. So, you know, worst comes to worst, you're getting a free meal. Uh, I, I'll just add to that that... Um you keep a running list of donated goods that you can use on the website. Um, if you are lucky enough to be employed by uh, one of the local corporations, most of them match anything through Benevity. So if you want to do a dollar donation, please do that. I think lastly, anything else that you want to touch on? No, I think you've asked a lot of really good questions, and I really appreciate it. And uh, and I appreciate you taking the interest in uh, in in this issue and being able to, like I said, being able to come downtown 
and uh, and do this on site is also really meaningful and uh, and I think it really speaks to you know how important it is for people to do that so uh, thank you and I wish you good luck with all your episodes thank you and we thanks, really John. appreciate you joining us thanks thank you for listening this has been the progress Portland podcast our theme music is the acrobats by the Portland band Helvetia please join us next time <laughs>